Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. The volatility of marriage prompts some important questions. What is the point of marriage? Is marriage as a contract compatible with the instability of romance? In this episode, we will look into the role of marriage in society and the ethical and political implications of marriage as one of the most fundamental human relationships. I'm Sophia Herbert, a PPE student at New College, and I will be talking to Dr Scott Peterson, author of Legally Married and a politics lecturer at Corpus Christi College. Dr Peterson, thank you very much for coming on Oxpods today. I'll begin by asking how you would define marriage and if you could give us a brief history of its philosophy. Okay, defining marriage is really difficult because it varies a lot across different cultures and religious environments. Um, it basically has to do with some sort of a commitment to, between two people or more in some cases. Um, and that commitment is seen as very long-term and binding. Frequently, there's a way of breaking the commitment, although not always. Um, and that's, that's about the limit of what you can say about it as a, as a broad concept. Do you think because marriage has such a diverse range of cultural and religious aspects, we can identify any sort of fixed essence of it apart from the contractual element. Is there any sort of philosophical underpinning of its concept? Um, we, we can't really, probably. Some people would argue that we can, and certainly that's part of, the, uh, of one religious understanding of marriage. Um, in particularly the in particular the Roman Catholic understanding of marriage, which has to do with thinking that it's always between one man and one woman, um, that divorce is not really possible. Apart from that, and even you use the term contract, but in a sense that assumes that there are two parties who have equal status, right. and for most of the time. Um, that hasn't been true. In fact, Adam Smith, when he talks about marriage, he thinks that marriage, like everything else, comes out of material and historical circumstances, a lot of which have to do with wealth and that sort of thing. And he thinks that women became able to keep their own property when society became wealthier, particularly Roman society. He also is very critical of the fact that um, women don't have equal status, and he thinks that because men make the rules about marriage and because they have a better position when there's a bargain being made on the contract, that they tend to be have the better part of the bargain. And so how is this idea of marriage as a sort of economic contract in that sense evolved over time? And do you think it's compatible with the idea of love, and relationships, or do you think it makes the, the institution more difficult to sustain? That is a huge set of questions, which are very interesting. Um, over time, the beginnings of marriage, in part, had to do with ensuring endogamy, that is, that the group married within itself. And so it was largely based on class, so that it was it was important for classes to stay inside themselves. The economic aspect of that comes with the contracts and the property um, arrangements that were made in connection with marriages. But there was also a strong class component that had to do with people not marrying, that people of the aristocratic class didn't marry people who were beneath them in, in, from the lower classes. So that's another. 
love doesn't really enter into it until the 19th century, probably a lot. Before that, it had mostly to do with procreation and making sure that there were people to take care of you when you got old and to inherit any property that you had. Um, sex was a part of it. And, and sex was a part of it in the sense that it was a way of regulating sex and procreation so that people knew who was responsible for which children and that sort of thing. Um, but really, love and the emotional component is a fairly modern part of marriage. And as we understand it, religion plays a huge role in the concept of marriage and regulating sex and relationships. But how do you think the concept of religion has evolved our perception of marriage. I think it would be interesting to focus on the UK in this um, particular instance. That, again, is a really, and especially, especially since you frame it in the UK, that's a really interesting set of um, questions. In England, um, England and Scotland had different reformations. Um, the English Reformation had Henry VIII, who wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. Um, he got a divorce in the process of which he declared himself um, the head of the church in England. Um, and separated the church from the from what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the Scottish Reformation is a Calvinist Reformation that comes out of the Calvinist tradition in Geneva. Those two traditions, the, because the UK, because the English tradition um, is based more on the Roman Catholic principles, that set of rules is more consistent with Roman Catholic. Uh, marriage traditions. The, the, the Reformation in Scotland is different because it grows out of the Calvinist Reformation in, in Europe rather than just being this idiosyncratic English Reformation. And it's um, ha habit and repute is one of the kinds of marriage that is part of that, which is if, if people recognize the couple as being married and they have a reputation for being married, um, they're treated as married for all purposes. Um, in particular after the death of the husband because the woman's interest in the property is protected. Uh, but that's different from in the UK and it is a precursor to common law marriage. Um, so that's, that's a, an important difference. Divorce is also very different between the two systems. Um, under English law, divorce was much more restricted and under Scottish law, it was much more likely that a couple would be able to divorce if they had problems. So that's really interesting how perception, you can perceive a sort of um, devotion to someone and then that can sort of translate into legal responsibilities. It can and that's and, and let me use that as a place to kind of an advertisement for my former career as a lawyer. Um, one of the biggest problems with marriage is that if those legal responsibilities and rights start to grow out of less certain circumstances then it can become really problematic as to whether people have them or not. And that results in litigation, which is always bad and expensive. So the more certainty we can have around marriage so that we're sure that it happens when it happens, rather than having someone accidentally get married by being with someone living in a house together for a period of time or something like that, the more certainty we can have from everybody, the less likely it is that people will be unhappy and have to spend a lot of money um, sorting things out after someone tragically dies or something. So yeah, it's, certainty is important. And, and I'll just say in that context that, for example, uh, this is a serious problem in the Muslim community because there are a lot of um, circumstances where marriages take place in that community where they're not legally recognized in the UK and people expect to be able to get a divorce and the courts have a hard time sorting out how to do that. So that level of certainty and predictability is really important.
So I think that's interesting that it's it, marriages within a religion can't always be legally recognised in other cultures, but the moral aspect of that devotion is recognised within that religion. So my question was going to be, how do you think the role of religion has kind of moralised the institution of marriage? Because if you're marrying within a specific religion, surely that comes along with a specific eth ethical code or other ways you're then expected to behave within that religion. That's a really important distinction, and it's one of the solutions to that. C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist, um, wrote at length about this in one little section of one of his books about how marriage is a civil institution and it's also a religious institution. And he thought that the two should be separate in the sense that you should think about marriage in the Christian sense as something different from marriage in the civil and legal sense. And while he thought that Christians might not want to get divorced, it was perfectly reasonable for people who weren't Christians to get divorced um, outside of the church in a civil context. Um, similarly, in, again, during the Commonwealth, um, the, the government at one point legitimized civil marriage because they, it was possible to get married and you would, instead of reading the bans and giving notice of the marriage um, in church, you did it in the marketplace and the marriage took place from a justice of the peace. Um, that means that you can treat the institution in different contexts in different ways. And one solution people have suggested is to just make those two different, two different things, that you could have a religious ceremony um, separate from the civil ceremony. And this is what they do in a number of European countries where you can't get married in church. You have a church celebration of the marriage after the civil wedding. And do you think the modern secularization of societies has helped or uh, has changed the institution of marriage or helped overcome some of those issues of making religion compatible with the legal aspects? I think it's led to a lot of big fights mm. between people who think that religion should dictate what marriage looks like and people who are not religious who think that religion shouldn't tromp in and try to make a lot of rules for people who don't aren't particularly religious. Um, we see that, in fact, just today, um, there was a decision by the Church of England not to offer same-sex marriage in churches. At the same time, the Church of England has made a lot of progress in the last few years because they're at least saying that they're willing to bless couples who have same-sex civil marriages. Um, those people will be allowed to have blessings in church, whereas 10 years ago, the Church of England was arguing that no one should be allowed to have any marriage in any church with same-sex couples, including the, relig the religion, religious denominations that wanted to have them, like the Quakers and uh, liberal Jews. So it was, it's been a real change for the Church of England um, to recognize this, and it's, it's just, but, but the original point of view of the Church of England was definitely one where they wanted to really run the field. Um, on the other hand, you can have the civil authority, uh, the government coming in and saying that they're going to do things um, and f trying to force religious groups to do things. That seems like that's an equally unattractive kind of option to have them telling people how to practice their religion. So you have this real tension between, on the one hand, the civil authority saying, this is the way we want the legal institution of marriage to work, and then the religious authority saying, well, this marriage is religious and we want to treat it that way. 
How have recent legal changes, such as the legalization of same-sex marriage, as you just mentioned, impacted the intersection of law and our philosophical understanding of relationships? Let me say that there was a very big debate early on in the fight about same-sex marriage in which advocates of same-sex mar- same marriage obviously became kind of the dominant force among progressives because they, wanted, they, they argued that this was a matter of treating same-sex couples equally. There was a really, really effective and credible opposition to that point of view from progressives who believed that the whole institution of marriage was so deeply historical and so encrusted with hierarchical and old-fashioned gender norms that it was really squelching the possibility for creative development of relationships to try to squeeze same-sex relationships into those same old patterns. And, and this is true not only with, um, I mean, Peter Tatchell, the, the gay rights campaigner, argued this, um, as did a lot of liberal, uh, liberal feminists. And they just thought that the whole institution was so corrupt that it really shouldn't be replicated for in any new environment at all. This has become even more complicated now that we have started to recognize the issues with trans rights and the, the issue of whole gender fluidity. So this has all become really complicated. And I mean, I, I think that we don't have a coherent theory of marriage and it's really difficult to develop one, but because the legal rights we've been talking about, rights of inheritance, um, rights about children and families, those kinds of rights and duties, I should say, obligations, those are all so important and so grounded in marriage that it's really important, really difficult to just jettison the whole concept. Right. At the same time, um, it's just got all this baggage that it carries with us and with it, and so we're kind of stuck with it. That was going to be my next question: Was do you think this complicated history of marriage t- can tell us anything about the likelihood that it will survive as an institution? I would hate to say that it won't because I think that too many people just assume that it will always be there. And it's so important and central to so many people's lives in terms of spending a lot of money and having a nice wedding ceremony and having a reception and the traditions about toasts and all those things. And it's so complicated that it's really difficult to imagine it just dying out as an institution. It's also easy to really exaggerate how widespread it has been historically as an institution. I've been doing some research on my own family in the last few years, and I have two sets of great-grandparents, both of whom lived apart from one another, one of whom actually the wife left her husband, who was in Scotland, moved back to the United States and married another man. And I don't think there was a divorce involved in that. I, there was a, one generation further back, and I think that they didn't quite bother to get married. They just had children, and there was another marriage that was involved there somewhere, and some other things happened. But, but marriage just wasn't as uniform, and especially among people who didn't have the resources to rent halls and have expensive gifts and who didn't have property to inherit and who weren't that worried about children. So I think I think it's easy to exaggerate how uniform and historical marriage has been. 
And at the, but at the same time, I think now it is so prevalent among pretty much all of the population. They may not get married in church, but they want to get married. And so as a result of that, I can't see it dying out now. After COVID, there was a huge increase in marriages in the UK. Um, so I think that says a lot about the sense of community, um, despite the rise of individualism throughout the 20th century. I agree 100%. I think that um, COVID made it kind of obvious how important personal relationships were on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you had to survive the pandemic living alone in an apartment somewhere in, or a flat somewhere in London, um, that made it just obvious that people wanted to have companionship. So th there are these parts of marriage and the ceremony is one, the com companionship is another, the, the ability to kind of see yourself in the future in a more secure condition than otherwise, those kinds of things just kind of drive people toward that kind of quasi-permanent association with other individuals, with another individual really in Western culture. So I'll slightly change the direction here and talk about where the concept of marriage is derived from. So. Um, early Christian philosophers of marriage, including St. Augustine, moralized it by understanding it as the only legitimate context for sex. And in that way, the way the individuals behaved within a marriage therefore came to represent sin and virtue. How do you think this concept has evolved? And I think in the modern day, we still, we still um, have standards by which we judge individuals' behaviors within a marriage. Um, but do you think this concept has evolved over time? Well, I mean, there's, there's this hierarchical aspect to marriage, and I, you see that in Aristotle. Aristotle just really thinks this is about division of labor, right? And this is where the, this is where the Roman Catholic conception of one man and one woman um, for life comes from, because there's this notion of complementarity where the sexes are different and work together in these important ways to make children and so on. Internal to the marriage, um, I mean, the religious views tend to insist on some level of mutual respect. And so Milton, who's a Puritan, talks about how the, the real purpose of marriage is not uh, having children, um, and it's not even sex, it's kind of, he, he calls it conversation. It's this ability to just be friends and, and the companionship part of it. And he thinks that divorce should be available when that's not the case. Um, even, and I'm now blanking on the name of the Calvinist theologian, who talks about how if it, it, under, uh, under certain circumstances, it's perfectly legitimate for the couple to divorce when things aren't working. So divorce is the remedy to that lack of internal cohesion in a marriage. And it works in different ways in different religious denominations. So it's not, not all Christians follow the Augustinian idea that you, you have to uh, put up with almost anything that happens within the marriage and, and, and you're punished in, in eternity um, if you behave badly. But for here on earth, we have to behave just the, the way that we find ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really interesting. So divorce or annulment can be used as a way to remedy that central tension between the economic contract and the instability of love. And I read that Hegel actually believed that um, arranged marriage is the most ethical form of marriage because it's not predicated on the instability of love and relationships, which I think is a really interesting perspective on it.
Hegel has some very odd ideas. Um, he, but the idea that arranged marriages would be pure is, I think that's more Hegel just being difficult than anything else because Hegel's time is the period when we're first beginning to see really pure romanticism where you would find love and that, and, and that kind of a marriage definitely isn't going to necessarily involve love, right? Or is it? To take your Hegel and raise you one, um, Bertrand Russell actually thinks that marriage is exclusively for providing a stable environment for raising children. Right. And, and Bertrand Russell is completely non-religious, right? He's an yeah. atheist. But he also thinks that sex should be freely available as long as there's contraception. So people should be able to have sex anytime they want to with anybody they want to, including if they're in a marriage because he was in a very unstable marriage himself. But <laughs> sure enough, um, once you start having children, then you have an obligation to get married so that everybody has this stable environment for them. And the only reason for divorce is if you're incapable of providing a stable environment for the children. So he's pretty old-fashioned that way in, in, in one sense. In the other sense, he's very, very progressive. So that's pretty interesting how he's just... The, the whole concept of stability is the foundation of marriage, whether that be economic stability or stability within that relationship. So we've looked a lot at the um, philosophical and religious underpinnings of marriage. Um, and you are an expert on the legal side of it. Um, so how has marriage historically evolved in legal institutions? Legal institutions use marriage as a way to regulate, as we've said already, um, inheritance and class relations and property. This is the Jurassic Park syndrome where nature finds a way. Um, even when the lawyers and the, and the politicians and the judges all try to make things work a certain way, people find ways around that. And so in the early 1700s, there was a huge moral panic over the fact that all these heiresses were being basically married by these young upstart politicians who didn't have any money and just got a bunch of money from the family of the of the woman who had a bun who came from a wealthy family um, this results in something called lord hardwick's act and this act basically says that no marriage performed outside of the church of england um, can be valid so and and that marriages had to be by people who were 21 years of age or older and you had to have the bans read now bans are this custom of reading out um, the fact that somebody is going to be married in the church for three Sundays before the marriage takes place this is a way of making sure that there are no good reasons that the couple can't get married for example they're already married to someone else or um, they are too closely blood related themselves um, or various other impediments, they're called, to marriage aren't there. So they want to have the bans read to make sure that the person isn't married to someone else. Um, they want to have them over 21 so that they're an adult capable of making their own financial decisions. And they want to have them married in a Church of England church so that they know for sure that they're married. Now that leaves all the Roman Catholics and all the non um, Church of England Protestants not able to perform marriages in their churches. Um, the two groups that are accepted from that are the Quakers and 
the Jews, both of whom are allowed to register their own marriages. But the issue here has to do with the fact that they think that people are going to work their way around the marriage laws and they want Church of England clergy regulating these relationships to make sure. And of course, they thought that Roman Catholic clergy probably weren't well-educated enough or were superstitious or for whatever reason, wouldn't be careful enough about their records to make sure that the institution was protected. So the bottom line is the legal the legal relations around marriage tend to follow whatever the current social problems happen to be. And by and large, they solve problems that did exist but may not be existing at the time that they're being solved, or they stop existing, or they even overcorrect. I mean, Lord Hardwick's act created all kinds of problems because it invalidated these marriages, which made the children um, not, as, we, as they would say at the time, not legitimate. So that children couldn't inherit anything from anyone if they, were, if they were a product of one of these marriages, which could just have a technical flaw of some kind. If you had the marriage, say, in the afternoon instead of the morning, um, that makes it invalid, and that's a bad thing. So, so these, these, these relations are really complicated and hard to predict. And, and when law over-regulates things, then you have to wonder whether it's performing the social function that it should be performing. So that can have a severe like implication on the direction of somebody's life, whether a marriage is recognized or not. And I think the, um, the idea of conflicting religious principles on marriage is really interesting in the modern context as well. As countries become more multicultural, um, you mentioned earlier Islamic marriages not being recognized under law. Do you think this is a big issue within modern societies? We don't know. There are some recent studies that have been done, and I haven't looked at them recently, so I can't say, but I think that people have found that there are quite a number of these marriages that are, that are taking place. Um, there may well be religious ways to handle them within the community. Um, as you say, there's this distinction between the legal and the, the, the religious community or the moral community. Um, and if the moral community is able to take care of these, the problems can be that the moral community may not, for example, value the woman's uh, role in the marriage the same way that the legal community would and that takes that particular set of legal tools away from that woman who otherwise might be able to say I don't know have better child custody arrangements or better financial support or something else to to support them at the same time there are remedies available in those religious communities so we don't want to completely discount that okay well I think that's a great place to wrap up thank you very much for coming on Oxpods today um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.